The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery. Our knowledge is up close and personal. Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts through our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. Welcome to Episode 8, The Hell of Suicidal Thinking and Escaping from It. I have to say before we get going that preparing for this episode has been difficult and has brought me to tears more than once. Given the sensitivity and volatility of the subject of suicide and our desire and the need to keep everyone safe, we have set clear objectives for this episode. Before we explain our objectives, I want to say we have taken a deep dive with this topic, and this episode will run a little bit longer than usual. Helen, you want to share our objectives? Yes. Uh, here are our objectives. To prevent even one person from attempting suicide. To share our own journeys with suicidal ideation and attempted suicide in order to offer hope and promote recovery. To provide information, tools, and language to help those contemplating suicide to make a different choice, to provide information, tools, and language to those helping someone who is contemplating suicide to make a different choice, and to share resources. Because of what we're talking about today, I think it's good to put out a couple of reminders that this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information presented is not intended to be a substitute or relied upon as medical advice diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Please remember to always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any health-related questions you may have. Now, today, we have a guest again. We are joined by Jenny Witten. 
Jenny is a licensed clinical social worker who has been in private practice here in Austin, Texas for 25 years. Jenny is going to join our conversation after Helen and I share our journey with today's topic of suicidal thinking. And I'll tell you more about Jenny's background when she joins us later. But for now, I want to say that in addition to Jenny's credentials as a therapist, Jenny is my dear and much loved friend. Jenny and I met as kindergarten moms when our sons became friends. 29 years later, now our sons are still friends and Jenny and her husband and my husband and I are all the closest of friends. Jenny and her husband were with me through my darkest times. They supported my entire family in more ways than I can count. And since then, we have celebrated in just as many ways including three weddings and six grandchildren. Jenny, Helen, and I are honored to have you with us today. Welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I am so honored to be here and be a part of this process. Thank you. Welcome again, Jenny. Okay, so let's begin with some background on suicide in our society today. The statistics are overwhelming, and we're going to give just a few to bring home the severity of the issue. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for those between the ages of 10 and 24. It is the 10th leading cause of death in the overall U.S. population, and the numbers are increasing at an alarming rate. Between 1999 to 2018, the suicide rate in the U.S. rose 32%. This according to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Those are quite, um, I don't even know the words. Those statistics really make the episode we are um, putting forth today even more, more, more important. I think so. There are some risk factors. Suicide risk factors are well-documented, and the ones we are putting uh, sharing right now are from the Joint Commission on the Prevention of Suicide. And these are some of the suicide risk factors that are agreed upon by all the experts in this field. And they are mental or emotional disorders is one of the uh, leading risk factors. Previous suicide attempts or self-injury is another risk factor. A history of trauma or loss, such as abuse as a child, family history of suicide or economic loss, serious illness, or physical or chronic pain or impairment, another risk factor, alcohol and drug abuse, social isolation, or a pattern of aggressive or antisocial behavior, discharge from inpatient psychiatric care within the first year after, and particularly within the first weeks and months after discharge is a risk factor. And last, Access to lethal means with suicidal thoughts is a risk factor. It can be quite dangerous out there. Um, Now, I know that a number of people don't really know what suicidal ideation means. I wasn't so sure myself. And so here are a couple of definitions to start with. Suicidal ideation is thinking about, considering, or planning suicide. That's from the Center for Disease Control. Suicidal ideation is thoughts of serving as the agent of one's own death. 
Suicidal ideation may vary in seriousness depending on the specificity of suicidal plans and the degree of suicidal intent. That's from the American Psychiatric Association. So, Valerie, you and I both have our own uh, uh, experiences, very close experiences with this subject. And I wonder, do you want to go ahead and talk about yours? Yes, I will um, share my journey. And a quote by Winston Churchill helps describe my years of recurrent suicidal thinking. And Churchill said, if you are going through hell, keep going. Now, I know Churchill meant this as a motivational statement, meaning if you are going through a hellish period in your life, keep fighting. But for me, it felt like the hell itself kept going. For years, I had thoughts of suicide, of thinking if I did that, I would die. One of the definitions we gave said that suicidal ideation varied in seriousness depending on the degree of suicidal intent. Well, all but once, the intention didn't materialize into a suicide attempt, but I was living in a mental hell. These thoughts of wanting to die were with me not only during the years I was depressed to the point of barely getting out of bed for days and days on end, not only when I was barely eating, not showering, not interacting with my family or with anyone else, these suicidal thoughts were also with me when I appeared to be functioning well, when I was getting up each day and showering. I mean, I was going to work, being a loving mom and a member of my family. But I would still think as I was driving down the highway, I would think if I turned into that embankment, I would die. Or as I heard the train from far away, as I lay in bed at night, I would think I could lay myself down on that track. It was a hellish way to live. Now, this is hard to talk about, so I'm imagining it could be hard to listen to. But this recurrent suicidal thinking did stop for me, and I promise we will get to our recovery stories soon. Well, thank you, Valerie, for being so candid. Uh, it's, uh, you have a lot of integrity to be talking about this so honestly. My, my obsession with suicide is almost as old as I am. I was far too young to be told about it, only six. I was too young to fully understand it, but I knew that I would have to kill myself if I didn't fix myself so that someone would love me. Even at that age, I was convinced that I was repulsive and unlovable, a belief that never went away even when I grew up. As an adult, during the years of mental illnesses, Suicide was my constant companion. I had a plan, the means, and figured it was just a matter of time. When the urges became very strong, I had the compulsion to kill myself in the moment with whatever means were at hand, like once I almost drove my car off a bridge. This was different from thinking about it. I was dangerously close to doing it. My head exploded with different ways to end my life. I never reached out for help when the urges became acute. Instead, I'd tell my therapist after the fact. The same was true during my hospitalizations. I was so afraid of restraints that I never spoke of how suicidal I was. So suicide was a lethal barrier between me and my ability to live life fully. When I was suicidal, I felt completely apart from the human race. 
beyond the reach of humanity. All I could think about was death as a cure for unbearable pain. It seemed as if I was being punished for a crime I couldn't possibly have committed. I reached the point where I hated being alive. It was just a matter of time before I'd be brave enough to kill myself. My old self was dead. I could never get it back. It was time to die and to end my ugly story. Helen, I know that wasn't easy. And my heart breaks for the pain you lived in for so long. And I'm, I'm grateful your story didn't end before you conquered that pain. Thank you. Now, there did come a moment when my emotional pain became so great that I did try to take my own life. In the moment that I attempted suicide, I truly felt as though I was such an immense burden on my family that it would be better off if I was gone. I hadn't held a job in more than a year, and my illness was causing a financial burden on my family. I was a financial burden. I was an emotional burden. I was every kind of burden in my mind. I had been in and out of the hospital six times already. On the day I attempted suicide, I had barely, barely left my bed for a week. And these periods of days and days in bed had been going on for more than a year. But with the impact that my suicide attempt had on my family, I wish with all my heart that I had reached out for help just one more time in that moment that I had made the decision to hold on and ask for help rather than give up. Knowing the pain and the devastation my suicide attempt had on my family, I can hardly bear to think about the pain I would have caused if I had died. I'm beyond grateful that I lived. I fought hard to get well after I attempted suicide. I fought my way back to sobriety and stability with my mental health conditions over the next several years and into a life of recovery and beauty and blessing now. I've tried to make a living amends to my family every day since. It's far from perfect, but I do my best. You know, the, your best is uh, pretty admirable. You know, I would give anything to skip this part. It's like walking down a path of broken glass when you've lost your shoes. I tried to kill myself more than once. Obviously, I didn't succeed. I had to live with the aftermath, which I viewed as failure of courage and resolve. Very few people ever knew I had a plan and the conviction to end my life. And afterward, when I was shocked to find myself alive, I didn't tell anyone but professionals and two close friends. I deliberately kept myself apart from people because I was tired of faking it, and I honestly felt that no one could help me. On the day of one of my suicide attempts, I stopped in the small park at the end of my block. There was a young mother playing with her tiny daughter. She would roll a small purple ball to the child who would run after it joyfully. Oddly enough, I was wearing a purple silk shirt that matched the ball. And when the ball rolled near me, I picked it up and rolled it back to the little girl. She clapped her hands and chased down the ball. A beautiful New York moment. But I took it to mean that I had just passed on my life to an innocent child who had a fresh chance at life, whereas mine was over. I'm so glad it wasn't over and that you and I have had 
the time together to share our lives and that we have so much time in front of us to share our lives. Thank heavens. (laughs) Yes. And I promised we would get to our recovery stories and we're there. How did I overcome this? Well, getting sober was the turning point, but it was a slow shift out of that recurrent suicidal thinking. I had been putting numerous drugs and copious amounts of alcohol into my body for many years. And that's why it was such a slow transition into clearer thinking and more positive thinking, because research shows that it can take up to a year to get certain drugs and that quantity of drugs and alcohol out of one's system. But because the drugs and alcohol were leaving my system, my psychiatric medication started working and the depression began to lift. My thinking in general became clearer and I was able to follow the suggestions of the people who supported me. I, I knew I couldn't think my way into right action. I had to act my way into right thinking. And I'll say that again. I couldn't think my way into right action. I had to act my way into right thinking. So I practiced mindfulness before I even knew what mindfulness was. I, uh, I took the next right action, whether it was do the dishes, go to my children's school or sporting events. Maybe it was call my sponsor or go to work, maybe even just pay my bills. I began to choose right over wrong. I began, I even began exercising. I tried to live each moment, moment to moment to the fullest. Most importantly, I developed a spiritual connection. And due to all this effort, and it was a heroic effort, due to all of this, gradually, very gradually, my thinking became more positive and the thoughts of suicide slipped away. It really was a heroic effort that, you. that you were able to do this. So how did I rid myself of my constant companion? Abraham Lincoln said of his own depression, if there is a place worse than hell, I am in it. I suppose the turning point was when my doctor told me I'd never recover and never work again. Something in me snapped and I vowed to prove her wrong. At the time, I had really begun to practice dialectical behavior therapy, that's DBT. It had taught me dozens of skills to overcome the cruel and punitive thoughts and feelings that had driven me all my life. I changed my treatment team to more optimistic therapists, and using the skills, I began to take opposite action. Rather than isolate, I let people back into my life. One of the friends who knew about my suicide attempts took me to lunch one day. He looked at me and said, if you kill yourself, I'll never get over it. For the first time, I was able to see the consequences my death would have on another person. I had honestly thought no one would really care. So I began to go through the motions of a healthy life, diet and exercise, better sleep, and most importantly, consistent exposure to other people. I also began to capture a sense of purpose through work, writing, and volunteer work. And the pain began to loosen its grip. So I got my old self back. And I've gone places I never dreamed of. 
somehow, and it took a long time, I began to realize I had found a cure for the unbearable suffering. I was astonished to learn that living was the cure, not death. Life itself was the cure. It was there all the time. And life brings me joy and fulfillment to this very moment. You bring joy to others as well, Helen. Oh, thanks. And we have shared our journeys now. And I know that sharing this journey with you, Helen, makes me feel as though I'm not alone. And I hope that we have conveyed that to others. And now we want to speak to those who are supporting someone they may be worried about. And how do you know someone may be thinking about suicide is is the first thing we want to talk about because suicidal thinking is complicated and the signs are subtle, but there are signs to look for. Here are things, here's a list from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you're concerned about someone you think may be contemplating suicide, these are the signs to look for. If someone is talking about suicide, for example, making statements such as, I'm going to kill myself, or I wish I'd never been born, or I'm just a burden, that's how I felt, or I'm not going to be here anyway. Another sign is if someone is getting the means to take his or her own life, such as buying a gun or stockpiling pills, or withdrawing from social contact and wanting to be left alone. Another sign of suicidal thinking is if someone is feeling trapped or hopeless about a situation or the increasing use of alcohol or drugs, changing a normal routine, including eating and sleeping patterns, doing risky or self-destructive things such as drugs or driving recklessly, giving away belongings or getting affairs in order when there's no other logical explanation for doing this. Saying goodbye to people as if they won't be seen again, or developing personal, personality changes, or being severely anxious or agitated, particularly when experiencing some of the warning signs I've listed previously. So, what should you do if you think someone you know has thoughts of suicide? Now we have that we have listed signs that someone may be contemplating suicide. What? Do you actually do if you think someone you know is indeed thinking about taking his or her own life? Well, there is a widely recognized five-step plan for helping someone, and we have taken it directly from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline website. And we encourage everyone to go to this website because there are more details uh, we're sort of summarizing here today. So here's step one. Ask. Ask the question, are you thinking about suicide? Do not ever promise to keep their thoughts of suicide a secret. And the flip side of ask is listen. Help them focus on their reasons for living and avoid trying to impose your reasons for them to stay alive. Step two, be there. This could mean being physically present for someone speaking with them on the phone when you can or any other way that shows support for the person at risk. Step three, keep them safe. After the ask step and when you've determined that suicide is indeed being talked about, it is important to find out a few things to establish immediate safety. 
Have they already done anything to try to kill themselves before talking with you? Do they have a specific detailed plan? What sort of access do they have to their planned method? Step four, help them connect. Helping someone with thoughts of suicide connect with ongoing supports like the lifeline can help them establish a safety net for those moments they find themselves in a crisis. Connect them with community mental health supports and resources. Step five, follow up. Make sure to follow up to see how they're doing. Leave a message, send a text, give them a call, really try to visit because the aftermath is extremely difficult for survivors and it can go on for weeks or months. And now here are some excellent resources. If you're feeling overwhelmed by thoughts of not wanting to live or you're having urges to attempt suicide, get help now. Reach out and take action now. Call 911 or go to the nearest hospital emergency room immediately. Call a suicide hotline. In the U.S., call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255 at any time of the day or night. There's 24 hours around the clock. You can press 1 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. You can text BRAVE at 741741. That's BRAVE at 741741. Or use their Lifeline chat online. And there's another excellent resource uh, that is based in Australia. It's called Square Suicide Questions, Answers, and Resources. So here is their website uh, address it's www. Square, S-Q-U-A-R-E, dot org, dot A-U. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks, Helen, for that great list of resources. And speaking of resources, I think it's a great time to bring in Jenny. I already said that Jenny Witten is a licensed clinical social worker who has been in private practice for 25 years. Her practice focuses on women's issues, relationships, eating issues, and anxiety. Before going into private practice, Jenny worked at various nonprofits, including the Center for Battered Women, now known as Safe Place, and at the YWCA and St. David's Eating Disorders Clinic. Jenny, you've been a patient listener, and now we want to hear from you. We have some questions for you. And Helen, 
Why don't you jump right in with our first question, please? Well, this is a an overall question. Um, what has been your professional experience with clients with suicidal ideation? I mean, I'm sure that in your in your long career, you've treated people with this with this problem. Yes, I have, and thank you both once again. It's such an honor to be here. When I meet with a client for the first time, I always ask about suicidal ideation, either active or passive, whether they've had thoughts of wanting to die or active thoughts to take their own life. I believe it's so important for the therapeutic relationship to address suicidal ideation immediately and often. I've learned quite a bit through the years about the process. In my practice at first, I believed I had the power to change clients' minds about feeling suicidal or acting on suicidal thoughts if only I could say or do the right thing. I now believe that only the client has the power to change his or her mind and that my role is to try to provide support, listen with compassion, and continue to directly ask if the clients are thinking about hurting themselves. I continue asking that question in every single session until and if the clients state with conviction that they're no longer suicidal. On a personal level, I've had two clients complete suicide while working with me. Uh, both instances brought great grief and sadness to me. And I will never forget those fine folks. What I do believe, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. What I do believe with all my heart is that anyone who takes his or her own life completely believes there is no other alternative at that moment. And I disagree with those who believe anyone commits this act for attention, to punish others, or to abandon their children. Well, I could, couldn't agree with you more because for me, you know, people say, oh, it's an act of revenge or something like that. I only wanted to end the pain. I had no no thoughts of anything else. And I, you know, I'm like you. I resent it when people, you know, begin to be pejorative about something that's so utterly serious. Um, what do you recommend people look for if they're concerned someone is contemplating suicide? You, we've sort of talked about it, but you, you're the expert. Well, um, you mentioned so many things that are so important. I, I think maybe something that I've learned through the years that is a little bit counterintuitive is if family members or loved ones are noticing that the person who's been contemplating suicide becomes very calm and content. Um, it's very strange, but statistics show that this particular behavior change 
is most present in the experience of loved ones of those who have completed suicide. Along with the sense of calm, you all have mentioned most of the other important indicators. The, the saying goodbyes, um, if you happen to notice that someone is writing and keeps that writing secret, that can be a tip. Uh, getting affairs in order, one of the interesting red flags to just look out for is if they start seeking legal advice, trying to get their affairs legally in order mm -hmm. is another red flag. Um, and then Valerie mentioned, of course, the loss of interest in appearance. Um, and one of the first things is just the loss of interest in cleanliness. Right. That, that was definitely a sign for me. And, you know, I, I hadn't thought about the sense of calm, but looking back on it, I had a sense of resignation, which I guess could have been seen as a sense of being calm. I had just made the decision that I was such a burden. It was absolutely the right thing to do. And I do believe I was resigned and that could have looked like calm. And I've never thought of that before. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, in a way um, because the, again, I was beyond help and I was beyond anyone, you know, interfering in my in my plan and so that made me just feel very you know sort of this sounds so awful but kind of grounded you know i was ready and this was the only thing left for me to do it's an interesting thing to watch for if someone you love is contemplating suicide um i think valerie also mentioned an uptake in drug or alcohol use Yes. And then <clears throat> I usually suggest that family members continue asking, are you planning to hurt yourself? Yes, ask the question. It's definitely, definitely an important thing to point out because I, I know that it's a myth that if you ask the question, you'll plant a seed and that it is truly important to ask that difficult question. Even if you think it might make someone angry, I think, um, I mean, not I think, I am certain I would rather have a friend who's angry than gone. Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, you made these interesting points, Jenny, about um, you make it sound as if from with you working with people, with, with your clients, that the whole asked suicidal ideation is, is really individual unto the person. Is that accurate, that each person kind of has their own way of approaching it and thinking about it? I, I know there's some similarities, but, but you, you seem to make it sound as if, you know, each time you, you have to kind of alter a little bit how do you work with the person. Absolutely. I mean, just like we are all unique, we're all unique in our methods. And I think um, 
there are all kinds of different thoughts that people may have who are contemplating suicide. And who are we to know? All we can do is ask and continue asking. Yeah, it's, I guess, one of the things I'm so eager to hear from you is what have you found to be beneficial for those who are struggling with suicidal ideation? I mean, are there certain methods that you use uh, that are beneficial for your clients? Or again, does it just vary a lot? Well, uh, it varies some, but um, in my view, a lot of things that help are actually very simple. Uh, It's that connection human to human. So in, in session with clients, it's just so important to ask them about their feelings around suicide and everything else and to bring it up every session. And I kind of push a little bit, asking them to articulate the emotions they're feeling. And I see my role as trying to offer compassion, understanding, and support no matter what their feelings are. Right. Um, One thing I have learned through the years is that arguing is not helpful. On a practical level, um, I do try to make sure that anyone who's who I know is contemplating suicide does have access to the 24-hour hotline. Um, and, and I will often give them my cell number in case of emergency to, to just have someone in particular to call. Um, and a lot of therapists would not concur with that idea. That's just something I do. Um, another thing that we haven't talked about yet that I have really found uh, happens quite a bit is that a lot of clients like to keep kind of an escape hatch. And what I mean by that is... Um, kind of keeping something on the back burner and needing to say, well, you know what? I want to keep the idea that I might want to have suicide as an option. I might want to just keep that in my pocket. And I used to find that so confusing, but I really think it helps some people have a sense of control. I mean, everything else is out of control, their lives, their feelings. And so I have learned to understand that in a sense. Um, I do, in those situations, I often do ask clients to consider developing a plan for safety. And that might include... um, just identifying the warning signs to themselves, making a list of alternative, alternate activities to engage in when they're feeling suicidal, to actually have a list there. Also having a list of people to connect with, a list of people they can call. And finally, 
if they're willing, I ask them to make an agreement with me that they'll contact me if they ever feel they're going to act on their suicidal thoughts. That is invaluable what you just did to make it to make a, a checklist like that, a safety list. It really is. That's because I wish I'd had one. <laughs> wonderful. That's a, that's a great list, a great plan for people who have suicidal ideation, habitual suicidal thoughts. I, I wish I had had that plan. It's, that's great. Thank you so much, Jenny, for sharing that. When you have clients that are struggling with suicidal ideation that, that give you permission to communicate with their family members, because that's the only way you can. Yes. What have you found that helps those family members to come to terms with it or to deal with it or just whatever? It must be so uh, distressing. Well, I guess you get all responses, you know. Yes. Uh, of course, depending on the family system. Um, but I do always suggest that family members and loved ones do their best to stay out of judgment. And, and that includes getting really angry with the person who's experiencing suicidal ideation. Um, I usually suggest that they continue frank discussions about suicide with their loved ones rather than kind of skirting around the issue, naming the issue. If they're able to go and see that person in person, <laughs> even if the person says, uh, not today, I just suggest they stay persistent. I just believe that that can help so much with the social isolation and also the sense of shame. Kind of like what you were talking about, Helen, the idea that no one really wants to help you. How could they? That it seems, and I've seen it work with loved ones who just are persistent. You know, I think we all really appreciate a hand being reached out in the darkness. Yes. Um, also, oddly enough, planning a trip <laughs> with someone or planning an event like a, um, a concert or a play or even going out to dinner, that can give somebody something to look forward to and, and a sense of purpose, at least for a little while. Um, also, probably the most important thing is friends and loved ones sharing with the person who is thinking about suicide, sharing their own feelings of sadness and doubt and their own journeys into darkness. I have found that, and a lot of families have found that to be the most helpful thing of all. Is that the finding that the common ground somehow? That, and that we're all hurting, or yes. that we all have hurt in the past, and that in that way, that this person doesn't have to feel different. That this person can feel, oh, okay, they've experienced that too. 
So there's, yeah, so there's a connection that hadn't been made before, I guess. That's wonderful. Yeah, and that's how I got through preparing for this episode was um, calling Helen saying, hey, having a hard time here. And we talked about our, our common journey and, you know, held on to each other's held on to each other through the phone you know exactly and, uh, exactly and knowing that i wasn't alone and knowing that others have struggled and that's absolutely something that is a connection we do need to make jenny you really that we have all struggled and we've all gone to darkness in one way or another in different levels you know and yeah. i when i was in the trauma hospital i was told trauma is trauma is trauma it doesn't have to be huge everybody's pain is valid whether it's at at your level or whatever everyone's pain is valid in their yeah. own right and that really is something we need to hang on to yes pain is pain yep. it's not a, it's not a contest right well, we all have it i think yeah um jenny i i've mentioned the aftermath and how difficult that is uh for so many survivors you know it's just it's so hard you know you just go wait a minute wait i'm still alive what happened or you're sad or remorseful or ashamed or cast out from your family because they can't handle it, whatever. What have you found healing for your clients when they have survived a suicide attempt? I'm so glad that you asked this. And uh, I just think it's so important because those who have survived a suicide attempt, as you both know, often need significant support afterwards. I mean, so many feelings can come up, Um, and you all have mentioned them all. Feelings of relief for some, sadness, anger, regret, shame almost universally, right? and, and hopefulness. And those are just a few feelings. Um, Some people, I think, feel even more depressed and may talk about feeling like a failure for having survived. And again, I think it's just so important to sit and listen to what folks are feeling. Uh, I also think it's really helpful um, for people, if they're willing, to join a support group for survivors. Absolutely. Uh, Again, understanding that there are other people who've experienced this. um, And in those groups, the ones that I'm aware of, um, there are very, very strict boundaries around listening with empathy and without judgment inviting them to explore all the feelings they have and again to validate those feelings whatever they are the social connection the social connection that we're human and that we touch each other and that we see each other i think can be very healing yeah that's that you you kind of just said it all in those sentences i think Yeah. yeah Um, I, um, what, what, what have we missed 
um, in terms of things that you have uh, been thinking about while we were talking endlessly or uh, our questions that we missed, whatever, because it's it's such a multifaceted and, you know, it's a life or death uh, subject. You know, it is the, the pressure really is great. So if you can think of anything else, please tell us now. Well, um, I've had quite a few clients want to discontinue therapy with me right after a suicide attempt. And um, and I I really try to ask them to hang in there with therapy. And also, um, a lot of people are real uncomfortable after maybe attending the first support group. It's just kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I will, you know, I will see people um, late at night or early in the morning or or free. (laughs) I'll do just about anything to keep them in therapy for a while so that our relationship can be repaired. Because I think when someone, well, normally wants to quit therapy, you know, of course, it could be mistakes I made, but right after a suicide attempt, I just think there's a lot of shame there. And and I've had a lot of my clients tell me, well, aren't you ashamed of me? Well, goodness, no. Um, I'm just like you. And I'm I'm there to listen. And can we can we keep walking together? So I have found myself. Um, really work hard on that one, but it's um, it's it's really, I think uh, it's helped me a lot to stay in connection with them, and I I do believe it's helped them to stay in connection and work through the shame they might feel. Thank you, Jenny. That. You have brought so much to this discussion and that social connection you talked about, the overcoming the shame and the fact that you work so hard to keep someone in therapy and all the things you talked about, your compassion. You're an amazing therapist. I I can tell that from here. And I know that because I know what an incredible person you are. And thank you for coming on uh, with us today and for all you've shared and all you've done for me and my family and your clients and I just and me and me yeah I just learned a whole lot yeah and I've been watching Helen this was this was brilliant I I just uh, really needed to hear from you today thank yeah. you I've been watching Helen nod and smile and uh, just really we're both just uh, really grateful I can I can see it in Helen's face and I feel it in my heart and just thank you so much and. Helen, you wanted to uh, do a quick run through of the resources because they're so important. Yes, um, we. Uh, I'm just going to run through it again, just uh, because uh, we we want to be sure everybody's got the information. First of all, 911 are the closest hospital emergency room. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. Uh, press one to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. Uh, there's a Lifeline chat online, or you can text them at BRAVE at 741741. And our other resource is Square, 
That's www.square.org.au. We've kind of uh, wondered how we would begin to even try to wrap up this topic today. And there's a Martha Graham, uh, the dancer and choreographer, was one of America's greatest artists. Uh, she's, she, she was. And I want to share something that she said. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. So our greatest hope is that anyone listening with suicidal ideation or urges will be heartened and somewhat comforted by our presentation today. There is only one of you in all time. There is a fine place for you in the world. So please stay here and find out what joy and fulfillment can be yours. And now, Valerie, please lead us through a mindfulness exercise. We need it. I will do that. We always end with the mindfulness exercise. Before I begin today's, I want to check in about last episode's exercise. I challenged those listening to choose a daily action and create a new pattern. The pattern was called, is called, if then, then that. And if you were listening last episode, I promised I would do this check-in. So how are you doing with your new pattern? Congratulations on improving your mindfulness, or this is your encouragement to give it another go. If you're listening now and you have no idea what I'm talking about, then please listen to episode seven and join us. Helen and Jenny, are you ready for today's mindfulness exercise? Yes. I think we need one after today's topic, and I've chosen an appropriate one. I always begin these exercises with the definition, what is mindfulness? It's a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations. Today's mindful exercise is adapted from mindfulnessexercises.com, and it's called Emotional Awareness and Acceptance. When difficult emotions rise to the surface, we often struggle to accept them. But part of the freedom that arises from mindfulness comes when we learn to accept whatever emotion exists, good or bad. But instead of judging our emotions as good or bad, we can simply label them. We can note the emotions that are arising by simply labeling them. In a minute, we're going to do just that. We're going to look inward and non-judgmentally label what we are feeling. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have difficulty putting a name on the emotion I'm feeling. So to help us, here are a few common emotions. Anger, happiness, grief. Surprise, irritation, love, shame, gratitude, fear. So let's give it a go. Here we go. Take a deep breath. 
a diaphragmatic breath, if you know that process, let it out. Another slow, deep breath to the count of five. Breathe in one, two, three, four, five. Then release your breath to the count of seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Again, breathe in to the count of five. One, two, three, four, five. Breathe out to the count of seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now look inward. Label the emotion you are feeling now or have been dealing with lately or have been struggling with for a while. Don't judge it. Just label it. Draw your attention to your heart space, opening yourself up compassionately and non-judgmentally to whatever your experience is. Mindfully ease any judgment that arises and simply allow yourself to be right where you are without attaching to the energy that is there. Feel only compassion. Breathe in. Breathe out. That's it. Thank you for joining me in today's mindfulness exercise. Oh, thank you, Valerie. That was uh, that was much needed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So now we must bring this episode to a close. As you may recall, our first objective was to save even one life. We pray that we have succeeded. After our intense past two episodes, we're going to focus our next one on a bright and challenging topic. Yay. Goals, <laughs> goals and goal setting. Even in the most difficult times, it's possible to pursue and achieve the goal of your dreams. So please join us as we share the skills and methods we've learned along the way. I want to thank our listeners. As always, we are honored that you have taken time to be with us. And again, thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much. And now I leave everyone with the best word there is, onward. Do you want to deepen your connection to the divine, speed up your progress on the spiritual path, then tune in to the Spirit Matters podcast. I'm the host, Philip Goldberg, and I interview experts with wisdom, insight, and practical guidance for every seeker of truth. Spirit Matters on the mindbodyspirit.fm network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.